may recall that video from when I played it a, a, a year and a half ago, um, but if you didn't, then that's sort of, sort of an introduction to our, our final session on the air we breathe. And uh, if you've been here for multiple sessions, uh, then I hope you found it helpful. And I would encourage anyone and everyone to get this book. It's a fantastic book. It's for the Sallies and the Robbies. It's for those who don't follow Jesus and for those who do. So, uh, greetings. Good morning. My name is Brad, by the way. Um, and it's a pleasure to be opening God's word with you today. As we begin, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So said Reverend Theodore Parker, Uh, when he was facing slavery in 1853. And his words have been used to give hope to many people in difficult situations since then. Martin Luther King Jr. um, brought this to the popular attention uh, during the civil rights movement. And the sentiment is full of hope. You see, today we may be in a struggle, but if we work at it, then tomorrow can be a whole lot better than yesterday. The ark is long, but it bends towards justice. It's not a rainbow sort of ark, but it's more of a, a downturn into the pit of struggle that eventually turns up to a better ending. Kind of a smile. I wonder if anyone watched the Matildas. Yes, of course you did. It was so exciting and encouraging to see some Aussies progressing further than we've ever been before in the World Cup. I think there is some progress. A number of people have pointed out how great it is that we're progressing as a country. They've said that the Matildas are contributing to change, to overturning misconceptions about women's sport and the place of women in contemporary Australia. The Matildas themselves pointed out that in 2007, FIFA finally started awarding prize money for the Women's World Cup only 25 years after they did that for the men. Now, I think the Matildas are more or less recognised and respected as professionals, a lot more than they were previously anyway. I think there's still a way to go, but there seems to be a huge amount of agreement that steps are being taken in the right direction. Progress. In this series on the air we breathe, we've looked at a lot of progress. We've looked at the impact of the revolutionary values of Jesus on this world that we live in. From a place where the accepted ethic of society was that the strong ruled over the weak, that women and children and slaves were inherently inferior and had no rights, from the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest to equality, becoming the the standard that we sort of feel in our guts is right to a compassionate, Jesus-shaped worldview where the strong look out for and and protect the weak. See, Christianity is about the sacrifice of the fittest, that is Jesus, for the survival of the weakest, that is us. Jesus flipped the old world values on their head. We've seen some progress from the powerful men doing whatever feels good to them with the women, children and slaves under them to a place where we expect consent in sex. We've seen progress where Christian people for Christian reasons founded the modern scientific method and today there's great harmony 
between reading of the, world, uh, of the word of science in the world and the word of God in the Bible. There's a great harmony because God has written both. We've seen progress where Christian people, for Christian reasons, fought to recognise the full humanity of slaves, lifting them from their oppression and setting them free. But from those very hopeful days at the end of the 19th century, as the the fight against slavery was won and the world seemed to be progressing so well, history and we fell headlong into the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Chairman Mao, Pol Pot, the Rwandan genocide... More people were killed in the 20th century than in the rest of history combined. Millions and millions of people were slaughtered because powerful men used progressive weapons to achieve their visions of progress. I read about um, how Chairman Mao was responsible for somewhere between 40 and 80 million deaths as he carried out what was called the Great Leap Forward. Was that progress? So I wonder who is to judge what is the right direction for progress? By whose measurement are we assessing humanity's progress? How do we know that progress continues and doesn't just return in a never-ending cycle of the same? After Hitler's death camps were discovered at the end of the Second World War, the moral ideal for progress became basically anything that was moving away from fascism. So without Christ as the goal to head towards, progress became a vague sense of, well, just not that, not genocide. The only metric became the pursuit of human rights. But the metric becoming human rights, not God, is problematic. Humanity encompasses both good and evil. Humanity encompasses both victims and perpetrators, individuals and the collective. Exactly which human rights are to be upheld and defended over which other humans. And so as society tries to bend towards justice, without God as the goalpost, we sometimes get it right and we often get it wrong. We still slip into the bad and the evil because humanity was never meant to have that ultimate place. It's in God that we find the litmus test for what is good progress. He knows the best for this world because he made it and he loves it. And so how do we live in this world that that is stumbling around in, in, in this sort of pit of the ark confused about what is and what isn't good progress. It can seem so dark because the world so often isn't looking to the source of all good progress. Well, we continue as salt and light, influencing the world around us to progress in God's ways, to move closer to heaven. And we call others to join us along the way so that we too, they too, can be part of that glorious future that God is progressing us towards. Of course, it can seem difficult. Like our influence on the world is 
insignificant. But when we look to the teachings of Jesus, we find encouragement that we so desperately need. So Jesus told a parable about his kingdom being like a mustard seed. Planting any seeds and and planting a, a mustard seed requires a lot of patience. Jesus said it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. As we explore this parable, we can think about how the kingdom starts off small, just a few disciples, and it grows to become a huge kingdom that touches lives across to the furthest ends of this planet. See, from little things, big things grow. And who provides that growth? It's not the gardener. It's not the birds. It's not the ones who fertilise and water. As gardeners, we can help a little, But fundamentally, the growth is God's work. And so the one who plants, the one who waters, and the one who fertilises must be patient. We need to wait on God to provide the growth. Another parable he told, more patience. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. When you leaven the dough like that by putting yeast in it, it takes time for the fermentation to occur. The yeast needs time to feed on the carbohydrates and release the carbon dioxide, ethanol and flavour and energy. And just imagine 30 kilos of dough. That 30 kilos with a good amount of yeast requires a lot of mixing and kneading and plenty of time to rise. This parable, again, teaches about how from little things, big things grow. It's also about hidden growth. The yeast is at work, but for us observing, it's like watching paint dry. You can't really see it grow unless you use like a time-lapse video or something and speed it up later. Um, It's transformation that takes place deep inside, like in the hearts of the followers of Jesus as we're transformed following him. And it's also a powerful way, it's also powerful in a way that is different to the mustard seed. What have I got here? You might think it's an apple, but what I have here is the power to feed the world. See, in this apple, there's some seeds. I can eat this apple. And I can plant the seeds in the ground and I can grow into an apple tree. And what do you get on apple trees? More apples, more seeds. So out of those apples from, I don't know, one tree, five, ten, fifty, a hundred apples, two hundred. Let's say five hundred seeds come from an apple tree. Five hundred more trees multiplied out. You see, this single apple has the power to feed the world. The kingdom of God, like this, starts out small, like a single apple. And it has power to transform the world. You see, it started with a penniless carpenter preacher, probably with splinters still in his fingers, in the back blocks of a mighty Roman Empire. 
He made a bit of a stir for three years or so before he was put to death on a cross. He died on a cross like many others at the time. And what happens when someone's executed, someone's killed on a cross? Well, they're forgotten, aren't they? But something remarkable happened. People kept talking about Jesus like he'd visited them from beyond the grave. His disciples didn't flee. They didn't go back to their lives that they had before Jesus. They didn't bow to the pressure from the mighty Roman Empire and stop talking about Jesus. They lived as if he really had visited them after being buried in the ground. It's like Jesus is one of these apple seeds buried in the ground and he grew up, became more powerful so that he could transform the world. He could feed the world. He could bring about this explosion of love and power, equality, compassion, science and freedom that impacted this world and is still impacting the world today. This is the way that God works. That power that was at work in Jesus is still at work in us today, his church, God's people, who he's got there as, as the yeast in the world, influencing the world around us. See, he's using seemingly small, insignificant gardeners like us, planting these tiny little seeds. And he's using that to build his mighty kingdom, progressing the world for good. When we come to the final pages of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, we have a picture of where we are heading to. The progress that we're making is headed for God's perfect plan. So of all people, we have a strong hope in future progress because we know that despite our current sufferings, uh, the injustice and the darkness around us, God is at work in all things using his timing towards this glorious future. In Revelation, we see the world is remade in a glorified, completed state. The new heaven and new earth represent a new physical creation where we have a future. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, is a renewed people of God, us. And we're prepared by Jesus through his sacrificial love so that we're ready to be united with him. And God says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden at the beginning, God walked with the people in the cool of the day. But in this renewed creation at the end, the place that God calls home is with us. He will be with us in a closer, more intimate, more joyful, more wonderful way than we've even begun to glimpse in the best moments of this life. It says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is a wonderful, encouraging image of our future. Everything painful, everything related to suffering and grief and loss will be taken away. And everything good, the presence of love personified of God, is enhanced, is multiplied and made permanent. The ruler on the throne says, I'm making everything new. And then he says, it is done. 
Like Jesus' cry, it is finished on the cross. This is affirmation that God has done it. He's completed his work. The war is won. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That is guaranteed. And as history works out, we know the end point. It is Jesus. Jesus and more of Jesus in the love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with his sovereign Father. That is fully assured. And in the meantime, we are that yeast, his yeast in the world, as we wait patiently for that full revelation of his victory. But I do want to point out that saying Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega doesn't mean that he's absent between the beta and the psi. Saying Jesus is the A and the Z doesn't mean that he disappears between the B and the Y. This is the Bible's way of pointing out that he is the word at the beginning. He is continuously present all the way through history and he is the culmination. He is the climax, the point of completion. Jesus is the A to the Z, the beginning to the end, the alpha to the omega. He's always with us, always strengthening us, always working through us. And again, this is fully assured. We don't need to doubt it. He says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So if you're thirsty, come to Jesus. Come with your hands empty and open, ready to receive, and he'll have you. He'll be your strength, your sufficiency. He will empower you to live in this this groaning world and live for him and bring his light into the darkness. See, the arc of our story is not a tragedy. It's not a, a Romeo and Juliet story where things start out hard. There's a, there's a high point of, of love and connection followed by a tragic downturn with a hopeless ending. No, Jesus' story is the inverse of that. That's the, our story is the arc of Jesus' story. He came down. He entered into our mess to invite us into his family. He went down, down, down becoming one of us, poor, homeless, beaten, mocked and scorned. He was tried with some trumped up charges and the only one that stuck was that he claimed to be God, God the Son. And so we put him to death for being who he was. And we thought that was the end. It really looked like the worst day in history. The one who is love in the flesh, compassion, kindness and forgiveness personified. He was nailed to the cross for sins that were not his own. And then came the darkness. But thankfully, Sunday arrived. The Son of God arose. Death could not hold him down. And so the arc our story follows is the arc of Jesus' story. It's like that of a comedy, a big smile. Things start out good. There is a fall, and the fall goes down a long way. But after the fall, there is redemption. There is hope and a happy ending to beat all other happy endings. While we walk through the the dip of the ark on our way through the dark valley, we have the source of all power, of comfort and light guiding us and empowering us, using us to bring his kingdom into our dark world. And we have that glorious, wonderful, happy ending to look forward to. So let me lead us in prayer. Uh, We thank you, loving Heavenly Father, 
for your inspiring, beautiful vision of our future. Thank you, Jesus, that you stepped down from eternity in the love and joy and fellowship of the Spirit and the Father. And you stepped down into the mess and darkness of this world, plumbing the depths of our predicament to save us, to lift us up and bring us back to you. Lord, this world is in desperate need of your intervention. So we pray, come in your resurrection power. Work in us and work through us for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, do give us patience as we watch and wait on your powerful work. We pray, Lord, that we would see what you're doing, transforming the world, and we would get involved in what you're doing. Pray that we'd get involved in action, in prayer, in petition. And Lord, most of all, we pray for your will to be done in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.